Hello everyone, we're your hosts Khaled and Mado, and this is the Unified for Palestine podcast, where we talk to different Palestinians around the world about their Palestinian identity. Today, we speak to Iman Judah, the first Muslim and Arab woman ever elected to the Colorado State Legislature. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. My name is Iman Judah, and I am the first Muslim and Arab woman ever elected to the Colorado uh, State Legislature, and I am the representative in the House of Representatives in Colorado for the 41st House District, which is in Aurora, um, and a little bit of Denver. I'm a first-generation American and Coloradan. My parents are Palestinian immigrants and refugees from Kalonia and Lifta. And um, I am a trained political scientist. I um, have my undergrad in political science from the University of Colorado at Denver. And my master's degree in public policy also from the University of Colorado at Denver. Um, From there, I worked in nonprofits, um, mainly around Uh, Middle East politics and um, education. I founded my own nonprofit, Meet the Middle East, which is an educational-based nonprofit that fosters relationships between the Middle East and the U.S. through education, consulting, um, and immersion travel. So I would take Americans from high schoolers, young professionals, to adults, to Palestine and uh, Jordan and Egypt, and I also taught at the University of Denver, um, two, two, three classes, um, which were uh, Islam 101, as well as um, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict from ancient history to today's headlines, and then um, life under occupation from a Palestinian perspective. I'm also the spokeswoman for the largest and oldest masjid in the Rocky Mountain region, the Colorado Muslim Society, which is also located right here in my district in Aurora. And um, I have been working at the Capitol for the past six years um, during each legislative session through the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, fighting for progressive policy and against regressive policies that hurt um, marginalized or underrepresented communities. Wow, um, that is such a great TV, I would say. I'm honestly surprised you memorized all this. I read about you. I read about all this and I was like, it blew my mind. And then just hearing you talk about it is like even more impressive. I'm more impressive, sorry. And um, yeah, so with someone as a first generation American and a Palestinian, growing up, how did you view your identity? Have you experienced, how do you experience being Palestinian? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, you know, my Palestinian identity is something that is at the core of who I am. And I think, you know, as Palestinians, no matter where you live, really, um, you bring a different lens to advocacy. And I think the reason for that is because we have inherited a conflict that gives us an unfortunate kinship in other uh, oppressed and marginalized communities. So here in America, um, you know, we are fighting the movement for Black Lives Matter, right? And we want to make sure that the Black Lives Matter movement is on the forefront of not only policymaking, but really a cultural shift when we talk about uh, civil rights and, and, and social justice issues. 
Um, I was adopted into the uh, Democratic Black Caucus here in Colorado. Um, arguably, I am one of the most unique incoming legislators because I don't fit into a caucus based on my religion or ethnicity. But the Black Caucus was able to recognize that kinship in oppression, recognizing that many of the oppressions that Palestinians still live under today, riding separate buses, having our civil rights violated, um, our human rights denied, the, um, the, the, the denial of, of access to the vote or the ballot, living in cages and behind walls, um, being subject to segregated checkpoints, um, these are all things that are either still happening in America today or were legal not that long ago. Um, and so, you know, being Palestinian at my core is something that I carry with me when I advocate for any community. And I say that because, you know, when I can, when I can testify on a bill before I was elected, and I was testifying simply as an advocate, I would bring that lens of, you know what? Um, I think that uh, civil rights are an inalienable human right. And here's my lived experience around that and when I've had my own civil rights and human rights denied. So when you carry these identity markers, and I think for me as a Palestinian American practicing Muslim woman of color, uh, this also creates a platform and an opportunity to educate others. So putting myself, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg so eloquently put it, in places where all decisions are being made, I was inadvertently and really unintentionally breaking down systemic racism and preconceived notions around what it is to be Palestinian, what it is to be a Muslim woman, and, and how we come together around issues that are not exclusive to being Muslim or Palestinian or Arab or a woman or a Republican or a Democrat or whatever issue you hold or identity marker, that in fact, there are issues that affect every single one of us as people who call Colorado home. A good example of this was uh, um, uh, equal pay for equal work. There was a bill in the 2019 session that called for women to get paid the same as men in Colorado. And my testimony was coming not only as a member, as a board member of the Women's Lobby of Colorado and a, a community advocate and liaison at the Interfaith Alliance, but as someone who was advocating for the Muslim community saying, listen, in the Quran, 1400 years ago, God himself said, I will always reward you equally for the same work, regardless of your gender. And if that's what the Muslim world dictates 1400 years ago, a region of the world that has often viewed as primitive, and we are still fighting for this in 2019, then I think that should give us some pause around the values that we want to implement in our democratic society. Um, so I read that you used to go to Palestine every summer as a kid. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you have lived experiences around oppression, apartheid, and occupation, and then you see that, unfortunately, right here in my own backyard, um, you 
realize that the advocacy that you can bring to that cause is not only just and 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 valid but also brings again that shared kinship around advocacy to say you know this isn't right around the world and it's sure as hell not right in my own backyard um I went to Palestine for the first time when I was 14, but seeing everything, seeing everything for, for myself, like the segregated roads, the walls, the villages cut off. There was an old man who was cut off for his entire family. Um, we went to, to eat and drink at his house and there were Israeli soldiers paroling on the street just to intimidate him. But to bring it back to the point in how you say when you're Palestinian, there's like a lens on um, social justice that you apply to other things. I definitely felt that, and I still do. I still do, whether it's um, in the context of the United States or the context of Palestine. Yeah, injustice everywhere is connected. It's it's especially true in the context of the U.S. and Palestine. It's it is very connected. Absolutely, yeah. And I think you know we as Palestinians have an obligation to maintain and preserve our heritage and history. And in, you know, however that manifests itself, whether it's through the culinary arts, whether it's through spoken and oral tradition, whether it's through our dress, whether it's through our, 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 our plants and our farming, um, you know, we as Palestinians have an absolute obligation to future generations and to those that came before us to preserve not only what they fought for, but what really makes up our identity as Palestinians. Um, you speak a lot about your parents and, and the role they had on you and, and the whole American dream concept and they came as immigrants and they, they worked, they started their own small businesses. Um, how was it in your household culture? Did your parents play a huge role in that, in, in your upbringing as a Palestinian? Absolutely. And, you know, I think for many Palestinians, right, it's it's kind of part and parcel of the whole Arab gig and, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, you know, my parents were an integral part of not only my upbringing, but continue to play a very active role in my advocacy. It was really my parents who set the stage for what advocacy looks like. My father was the co-founder of the Colorado Muslim Society, um, and he 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 really set forth a platform for not only um, his generation but my generation as to what advocacy could look like. How do you build the bridge and become a liaison through education? through breaking bread with one another, inviting people into the masjid or into our homes, and really just uh, creating space and grace around educating folks and allowing them to ask questions was what really, uh, honestly, uh, uh, preconditioned me to uh, advocate and understand the importance of it. My mother was a teacher and she did a lot of translating and advocacy work, advocacy work in Denver public schools for immigrants and refugees from Arabic speaking countries so that she could be a conduit and, and cultural competency around what it is to welcome our newest neighbors that call Colorado home. Um, and so watching them and growing up in their shadow was what really set the stage for me. And I'm incredibly and eternally grateful for what they've given me. I, I definitely relate to that because my parents did a lot of sacrifice 
um, for me to be where I am right now. And there's still a long way, but like having to, like my grandparents, uh, you know, were exiled from Palestine. Then my Syrian side, that I cannot, I'm not allowed to go back to Syria because of the whole situation. So I definitely can relate to that. And I read that you worked from a young age. Um, you know, you helped your parents and um, you stepped up as a community activist and um, you went into politics. I'm really, me personally, I'm interested in psychology a lot. So was there a trigger to all that? Was there like a point in your life where like, okay, I want to go into politics. I want to like inflict some change into this world. No, and as a matter of fact, this was the accident. Even as a, as a high schooler, even in college, even throughout my 20s, I never thought you know, my advocacy work should culminate in a track record and into an elected position. I never even thought of getting into politics. Um, but the more I did get involved, I realized that I had something to offer. I was a trained political scientist, especially in public policy. I held identity markers. I had lived experiences that could provide advocacy and, and really allow young brown girls and Arabs and Muslims everywhere to see themselves in their representation, something that had never happened before in Colorado. And I want to be clear, I didn't do it for those reasons. I did it because I have lived experiences around every single one of my prior, my policy priority areas, criminal justice reform, sustainable climate solutions, affordable housing, access to quality healthcare for all, jobs, education, and civil rights bringing these lived experiences to my policy agenda will be the, 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 you know, the culminating effect that I can bring to advocacy and make sure that we continue to diversify the diversity in our representation. One thing I'm really interested in when it comes to US politics, especially as a Palestinian, I tend to feel like you disagree with me if you if you think it's not it's not the case. I tend to feel like there's a lot of censorship on Palestinians and on Palestine in in a lot of areas when it comes to social media, when it comes to academics, and especially when it comes to politics. So growing up, I would never think that somebody from your background could be where you are, which which makes me so proud to even see you there, honestly. I was so happy when I heard the news. <laughs> so have you have you experienced censorship? Um on yourself and why are you Palestinian on your platform regardless of there's well what I see as the risk of being censored yeah I think one thing that I learned very early on before politics before anything even as a child was to be unapologetic for who you are and I am incredibly proud to be Palestinian um, I, I love everything about my country and a place that I call home um, I I have been censored. I have been told at work not to be too Palestinian. I have been told that maybe I shouldn't talk about those things, but I found a way to do it that gave me credibility and legitimacy. And that was in fact in front of the classroom. When I found a way to teach at a credible university about being Palestinian and giving resources that didn't convince students of my narrative, but rather gave them a platform that was unobstructed to have the ability to say, here's what Israeli sources say. Here's what UN sources say, Palestinian sources, and even American sources, to give them the ability to make a, a, a decision for themselves based on fact rather than emotion 
is what ultimately gave me the ability and the tools and resources to use Palestine as a way to advocate, as a way to educate. And for me, you know, I think there's there's a lot of organizations out there, many of whom I've been, you know, affiliated with that focus on, you know, peace and kumbaya and let's talk about how we all listen to the same music, which is fine. You know, I think at this point we need to focus on whatever is going to work and whatever sticks sticks. For me, the best resource and best tool was in fact through education. And so that's why it was important to me to focus my own nonprofit around education and not so much around the kumbaya or the, you know, the campfire, you know, sing songs practice. That to me wasn't something that was working. Um, so, um, you know, and you're right, there is censorship around the topic of, of Palestine, around being Palestinian. And I see people start to shift and, and lose eye contact with me when I bring it up, but um, that's the point, right? Is that we need to have these uncomfortable conversations and start to really recognize what it means to advocate. If you believe that Black Lives Matter, then by that logic, you also need to believe that Palestine has the right to exist. And so, um, you know, I struggle with this um, every day. This is something that I bring into my advocacy. And again, by simply being in these spaces, people come up to me and ask. I don't need to, you know, convince anyone of anything because the reality is, is, is this is what's changing it, is that when, when, when there's an incursion on Gaza or when bombs drop, it's being live streamed and, and it's not censored. It's not, you know, um, um, edited and it's not doctored footage anymore. And so, so, you know, there is a sea change happening in the United States about the platform that we are taking towards uh, the Palestinian people. And I think it is for the better. I agree. I think there's a lot of, it's become more normalized to talk about Palestine and the things happening in Palestine. Like um, this, was, this was at some point during the debates where, where, where somebody said the Palestinians deserve rights and everybody freaked out, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is like, you know, it's oh, obvious bizarre. humans deserve rights, but it was, it was still amazing to see someone on that level say that, you know, which is something that I would have never thought someone would ever say on that platform. So I'm, I'm grateful for that and I'm, I'm happy that that's changing. And even doing this podcast feels more comfortable knowing that it, it will be received well from Palestinians and, and... And it has to, you know, things have to change. If we want to be a true beacon of democracy in the United States and in the world, and if we want to really emulate the values that we hold true and to be evident, then we need to make sure that we don't pick and choose who that applies to around the world, especially when we have, you know, our own assets being invested into that. So, um, you know, I'm proud that Senator Bernie Sanders endorsed my campaign and Senator Elizabeth Warren endorsed my campaign. Two people who are on the forefront of Palestinian rights and trying to change the narrative in Washington. Uh, Representative and Congressman Jason Crow also endorsed my campaign and he feels the same around starting to change what it is and this conversation around uh, 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 Palestine. Um, and now President 
Biden also endorsed my campaign. And I'm hoping that through the reflection in his hiring and appointments to his cabinet, of which who include two Palestinian women, um, we will start to see that reflected in foreign policy. Do you, do you think it's important to have people, people like that on board? Because I, I've, seen, um, I've seen one of your talks and where you say that during um, one of your lectures or classes in university, people just wouldn't believe you when you were talking about Palestine until a white man came up and you know, said everything you're saying is true. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there, are, there are moments as people of color, as marginalized communities that we do need to lean on people who have privilege. And for me, privilege isn't just being a white person. I find privilege in the fact that I speak another language and that I use that privilege to communicate advocacy to those communities. I find privilege in the fact that I am a person of color and that I can reach these communities. I find privilege in the fact that I am a legislator and that I can represent these communities. But there is a sense of privilege around the color of your skin, around your residency status, your religion. And when I was speaking in class around Gaza, someone said that they don't believe what I'm saying. And a white man stood up and said, I'm a doctor with Doctors Without Borders. And I was in Gaza during the Gaza incursion and I can vouch for what she's saying. And again, in that moment, that's when I had legitimacy and credibility. It didn't matter that I was using reliable and credible sources. At that moment, I was an emotional brown girl and that's how I was being viewed. So there are moments where we do need to lean on people with privilege to say, you now have an obligation to use your privilege to uphold these shared values and what you hold to be true. And so, you know, there's definitely been spaces where that's happened and I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, the reality is, is that we have a long way to go. Even in this past election, I would hear from, from our own community saying, why should I vote for Biden? You know, he, he, he hurt the Muslim world. He, he supports Israel. And that's not the, that's not the kind of, of, of mentality we need to be going in with. We need to be going in with the mentality. We need to elect the people who align the closest with us. And then from that point, that's when the real work starts. It's not just the campaign. The real work starts when we start to guide our elected officials towards the policies that are the best reflection of our democracy. At least now it's becoming more acceptable in social media where like people of, of color, you know, they rely on other privileges and like, okay, you need to be held accountable for your privilege, but you also need to help people who don't have the same privilege as you do. So now it's becoming more acceptable, but it's unfortunate that we as humans need to always um, make that distinction clear. Like, oh, you're brown, you cannot do certain things. Oh, oh, you're a Muslim, you cannot do certain things or speak about certain things. And you won't be, uh, nobody will believe you if you're a woman or if you're a brown woman or a Muslim brown woman. Like it's just all these um, labels that we put on each other just to put each other down. When, I mean, I think now it's becoming more and more acceptable, but it's just really unfortunate that we as humans do that. And I'm really glad you were able to, to be where you are right now through no, all these obstacles. I, I, think, I think what's even more important is, you know, not only guiding our elected officials, but really making sure that we are electing people that share those values and that 
not just talk the talk, but actually walk the walk in their daily life when no one's looking. That's when you know someone has your back and they have solidarity with you, is that when I'm not in the room, my colleagues are defending me when someone's attacking my religion or nationality, right? So, uh, uh, and my heritage. So, so that's, that's where, you know, we need to start holding people accountable is don't just tell me that. What happens when I'm not in the room? How can I trust you to use your privilege to defend those people? And, 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 and I do that in my everyday practice, whether it's on my social media posts or even my, you know, reflected in my own staff and team. My staff is an all-female team. We are, uh, we speak seven languages and have four sp spiritual practices. Not only is that reflective of my house district, but it's reflective of the values that I think make uh, this, the, the, the tapestry of my community so amazing. Is interfaith dialogue important to you? It is important to me. I think, you know, some of the, the biggest misconceptions that we have around faith are simply around misinformation, um, that we believe what we're fed through media. And, you know, I have on countless occasions given the Sunday sermon in churches and, um, and it's an honor to do that. And again, to come around and say, listen, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I do believe he is the Messiah. And not only do I believe in Jesus, but I believe in Mary and her virgin birth. And both of them are, have, have their own chapters in the Quran. Jesus is mentioned more times in the Quran than the Prophet Muhammad So, you know, it's, it's really just, again, dispelling myths through opportunities of education and being in spaces where people feel comfortable to ask you what they think are stupid questions. True. Um, oh, Jesus is Palestinian. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why I like this topic so much. It's so cool to see a, a Muslim Palestinian woman give a sermon in a, in a church. Um, and we're probably the best people who can do it too, because we have everything right in the same um, tiny piece of land. Yeah, dad always used to say that. Um, it was one of my most favorite stories he used to tell me. He said, you know, growing up in Palestine um, during Christmas and Easter, Muslims would take their Christian neighbors presents. And during Ramadan, our, our Christian neighbors would open their windows to hear their recitation of the Quran. And this is the essence of what we can come to. This is what we're capable of. We just need to rediscover it again. Have people been, um, I mean, how have they reacted when after your sermons in, in the church? Like from people from non-Muslim backgrounds, were they, were they happy? Oh, absolutely. I think every time it was well received, people appreciated it. I established relationships and friendships from those congregations that I still continue to this day, um, that I see at the Capitol. And, 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 and we, you know, rely on each other to, to be that conduit to each other's communities. Yeah, I think, I think just comes like the essence of being Palestinian is that diversity our community and just our acceptance to each other which is great and that's why right now when people are like oh i might be at a disadvantage if i say that i'm Palestinian," or some doors might close in my face because i say that i'm Palestinian. and we have people on our podcast like Ahmed Jabdin, like a lot of doors closed because i chose and it was a con conscious decision that he chose to be visibly passing on his platforms 
But due to that fact, a lot of doors closed in his face. Um, do you have any advice for Palestinians going into like whatever they want to do, career or any aspect of life on their platform? Because you were visibly Palestinian and you chose to do that, like you mentioned before. You're extremely you Palestinian on your platforms. You're, as you say, unapolo unapologetically Palestinian. You, you can't miss it. If, you, if anyone reads about you, that's the first thing that shows up. And Rasul said, if you want to beat your enemy, learn their language. And I don't just mean that about a certain person or a certain group of people. I mean that as a, as a, as a logical approach to life, right? If you want to be successful, look at someone who is successful in that field, right? And I am lucky enough to have incredibly strong, powerful women, women of color that surround me, not only you know, before my time at the Capitol, but at the Capitol, who hold me up because of my identity. But I had to set the expectation that if you support me, then you support my heritage and my identity. There, this is, th these, are, these are not things that live in a silo. This is who I am. Now, as a people, we are not a monolith. And I also think that's what makes us great, right? That's, that's what allows us to come to the table and say, you know, I don't agree with you on this, but I do agree with you on this. And that is okay. I reach across the aisle to my Republican uh, 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 counterparts all the time. And I feel to, the, the, compelled to do that because uh, not everyone in my district sees the, the world that I do. And, and that's okay. Um, so, you know, when it comes to how you choose to present yourself, I think, again, there's ways to do it that apply to your field and that allow you to create space and grace for people to say, oh, I kind of get that. And, and here's a story of how that affected my life. I didn't know that was happening in Palestine. Um, on, the on the third day of our legislative session, we honored Martin Luther King. And um, a fellow member of the Black Caucus stood up and she told her story about how her mother went to segregated schools and rode segregated buses. And I reflected on that. And I think about the fact that that's still the reality for many people in Palestine. So again, I think creating space and a shared common commonality really around anything that you find is how you start to pave the way rather than kind of shoving it down people's throats. So being effective in your advocacy on however you choose to do that and whatever medium you choose is what's going to, again, give you the credibility to be someone who can not only talk about this issue, but do it in a manner that people actually listen. I love that advice, especially coming from you. You've already been through that. So like, I guess to learn and, you know, see it firsthand, that is great. And, you know, dialogue is important because not everybody in this life has the same reality. So even people in Palestine, their suffering is very different from people outside of Palestinians outside of Palestine. But we also need to find a common ground and we will eventually with whoever you can 
like whoever person in this life, I think you talk to anyone and you'll find something in common, which is great about us as humans. So just put yourself in the other person's shoes and you can probably understand them somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And we just have to be open to that. And you bring up a really excellent point is that, you know, even in my own journey to the Capitol and, you know, being adopted by the Black Caucus, it was important for me to recognize the fact that, you know, the, the Black narrative is, is also exclusive to the Black community. At the same time, there are shared experiences and we honor those respective experiences, um, whether it's the Palestinian experience or the Black experience or those shared experiences um, that, that allow us to find kinship in one another. But we do need to recognize that everyone's experience, lived experience, oppression or otherwise is in fact exclusive to that person, but if we can identify the things that we both find unjust and that we both find just, then that could be a good starting point. Just to wrap it up. So what are your hopes and goals for the future? Long-term, short-term? Personal and career-wise. You know, it's a good question. I think, you know, personally, I think about my five nephews and my niece, and I think about the, you know, the path that I wanna pave for them. And it's not just as Palestinian Americans, but it's as, as, as young people, as people who are really going to be the essence of our legacy. And, you know, for me, it's really important that we set a world, set up a world for them that they can thrive in. And again, that, that, that translates on into different issues. Like I want them to have a sustainable planet. I want them to have access to quality healthcare and jobs and education. And I want them to realize their American dream, no matter what that is, whether it's home ownership or a diploma or the ability to travel freely. And I, I want that for all generations. I just want to make sure that like the people that came before me, the shoulders that I stand on, I will be the shoulders for future generations. And, and that's personally and professionally. I, I want to make sure that you know, brown kids everywhere can say, wow, you know, I can do that. And that's not something that is, 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 is far away or, or out of reach and that they do have a right to be in that building. You, you are doing that. I think for every Palestinian American who sees you there, they know that they can also get there. Thank um, you. I know I personally can. And for every Palestinian who, who may not be um, an American as well, who may be living outside the U.S., it's, it shows that you know, Palestinians in the U.S. care. They're in places of power. They're speaking. They're connected. And they're, as Palestinians, every other Palestinian. Um, and and you, you just make a lot of people proud. So just, just know that. Thank you. And I do this for everyone else. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. Honestly, I I just look up to Palestinians and just people who I share some certain background with, and I feel like I can apply that to my field and whatever I want to do in life, because I think if you pick up the positive from every person you meet in life, 
and you apply that to yourself, then that's great. And just in the like, in the context of Palestine and whatever you're doing in the states, I mean, Khal has already mentioned, you're you're doing great, and you are paving the way for the next generation. So yeah, Thank we're extremely you. proud. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. We'll be we'll be excited to see what you do, and we'll be there to support you any step of the way. Inshallah, Jazakallah khair. Inshallah. Thank you for speaking to us. Hello again, friends. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. We felt extremely proud to see an established Palestinian woman doing so well in American politics. That being said, we release a new episode every Thursday, so make sure you tune in, subscribe to this podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Unified for Palestine. And remember, Palestine is, was, and will forever be free. See you next time. Peace.